Hello and welcome to NC State's Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peak. It's Halloween, and creepy tales about zombies are popular this time of year. People always talk about being prepared for the zombie apocalypse, but what if the zombies weren't people? What if the flesh-eating culprit was a parasitic fly? We're speaking today with Max Scott, professor of entomology at NC State, about the New World Screwworm, what it is, what it does, and what we're doing to stop it. Welcome, Max. Thank you, Tracy. I appreciate the invitation. I'm glad you're here. I read a story about the New World Screwworm, and it just, it was fascinating. So let's get started by, first of all, what is this creature? And what happens to animals that come into contact with it? I heard a reference to zombie deer in that story that I read. And right. so I definitely want to know more about that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so the, the New World Screwworm, its scientific name is Cochlemyia hominivorex, uh, which the species name literally translates to man-eater. Um, so it is a, a blowfly, uh, sort of a, a gray-blue blowfly. Um it's actually very similar in appearance to ones we have here in, uh, around in Raleigh. Uh, but it's no longer here. It's been eradicated from uh, Florida, from all of the United States, and through Mexico and Central America. But was it here for a while? And if yes. so, oh, for was, how long? So it was a native insect. Uh, that was really caused a lot of problems for cattle farmers in Texas and uh, further north of Texas in some years. And uh, it was not native to Florida, but we introduced it there when we moved uh, livestock to Florida uh, and then became quite problematic there as well. So this, this is an interesting fly for me <laughs> uh, in that it's, it's an obligate parasite. It is, it is completely adapted to a parasitic lifestyle. So the female flies, uh, they tend to live in the forest and, you know, they uh, feed on flowers. Uh, but then when they're ready to lay eggs, they will fly out and they look for animals, any, basically any warm-blooded mammal. And what they look for is some sort of opening. It could be as, as small as a tick bite or a mosquito bite or a, a cut. Uh, the animal may have uh, leaned up against a fence. It looks for that and then the female lays their eggs in this slight opening and the small larvae that hatch from the eggs then start eating the animal and um, they feed on the animal and when they when they finally fully developed after several days they fall out of the animal and uh, they pupate in the soil oh so how much damage i mean how uncomfortable uh do animals become from these infestations? How many eggs are we talking about here when the female lays them in a wound? Yeah, typically female blowflies can lay sort of up to 200 eggs at a time, but they can lay more. Um, so th what makes primary screw, that's, what, that's also called primary screw, and what makes it so bad is that when the larvae start eating the animal, that somehow this sends out chemical cues that other females pick up on and they come to the animal and lay more eggs and to get more larvae going and they burrow into the flesh that's why they get the name screwworm and they have hooks that really sort of hold them tied into the flesh and they have mouth parts that are really good at uh, pulling apart the flesh and eating in to the animal 
so it really does cause yeah you know major distress for the animal um once the wound gets big enough then other flies see an opportunity and there are sort of secondary flies like the secondary screwworm that will come in and lay eggs oh gosh there's more than one okay yeah so the secondary screwworm we have here in in raleigh oh it's called cochlemia macellaria but on its own it's not a pest the females don't lay eggs in living animals uh, unless there's something like you know the primary screwworm has created this you know major wound uh, so they're they're interesting they uh occasionally get mentioned on programs like CSI because they're important in sort of forensic entomology. Um, but they, they lay their eggs in, in dead animals and they, you know, that's an important ecological role breaking down you know, dead tissue. Right. But in the case of living tissue, it's not so great for the animals that are infected. So basically what happens is if you're a, a deer or a cow or some kind of animal with a scrape and the primary screw worm starts laying eggs in it, it just becomes a self-perpetuating problem forever and ever until, you know, are livestock perishing from this particular infestation or does it just lead to other disease that kills them? Yeah. If left untreated, yeah, mortality rates are high. Okay. Um, does this screw worm infect people? Like if you yes. were out on the farm? Okay. That's that's where it got its name from. It was, it was named by uh, Charles Cockerell, who was a, a 19th century French entomologist. And he, you know, he correctly identified the species. It was, um, he named it after a sort of unfortunate large number of cases in the French penal colony of Devil's Island. Oh, dear. And Devil's Island was, is off the coast of South America, uh, where a primary schoolroom remains endemic uh, in most of the South American countries. It's not in Chile, uh, but it remains a, a huge problem. It's a, a multi-billion dollar pest. Oh, goodness. Um, can you figure out that you've been infected before these things start eating your flesh? Or what is the primary sort of symptom, I guess? Is it creatures emerging from your skin or, you know, discomfort or what? Because it seems like they can lay those eggs in such a tiny little wound. Yes. And then the larvae that hatch from the eggs are really tiny. They're maybe one millimeter. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So... Uh, I've not met anyone that's had a primary screwworm infestation. It, it's really quite rare, uh, but I, I've seen the photographs and I've heard the stories. Um, yeah, the photographs are pretty bad. Um, oh, it's I have a collaborator in Uruguay. Because um, uh, primary screwworm is really a major economic uh, problem there, so we're working on it with them. And they say they often hear about uh, cases from dentists. So people go to the dentist complaining of uh, what they think is a toothache, but it's actually primary screwworm that's got into the, uh, actually maybe getting into the nasal cavity and it's burrowing in. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Because I was like, how in the world could you not notice a fly in your mouth laying an egg <laughs> in a wound? So, okay. But maybe through a nasal pet while you're sleeping or something. Oh, that's, yeah. well, that's terrible. Um and we've talked a little bit about how widespread it is, and we've managed to pretty much push it back from the U.S. borders, but it's still widespread over South America? Still widespread right? over South America and through uh, much of the Caribbean. Okay. So we did eradicate it from Puerto Rico, uh, but it remains uh, in Cuba, um, Dominican Republic, Haiti, Jamaica, um, 
and that's that we you know that's so that the fact that there is still primary screwworm out there it remains a risk to US agriculture and the zombie deer you mentioned mm-hmm. so in uh, 2016 in uh, I think it was September 2016 so every four years entomologists around the world gather for a congress of entomology and in that year it was in Orlando Florida and there was 7,000 entomologists there. And I think it was on the first, second or third day, I was with my collaborators who worked for the USDA, and their phones started going off. And people were sending them pictures of infested animals from the Florida Keys and wanting to know if it was, you know, was it caused by, you know, uh, some other fly. But as soon as they saw the pictures, they recognized that. Yeah, this was primary screwworm. It had got back into the country. I was very fortunate that it just happened to be like the world's largest gathering of entomologists <laughs> there at the time, right? So, well, yes. So they immediately left the meeting and made preparations and went down to the Keys. And uh, they were really shocked to find how large the population had become, uh, probably been there for a few months. The residents had noticed deer wandering around the streets that, you know, they called them zombie deer because they seemed to be wandering aimlessly. Uh, but what had happened was, of course, I think it was during the rut, and the males had wounds around their antlers. So the primary screwworm had laid their eggs there, and uh, the larvae proceeded to sort of eat the flesh around the antlers. And yeah, you, the photos are pretty bad. Pretty bad, yeah, I imagine. Uh, I mean, but they didn't the, eat the brains of the animals, right? Uh, did they bar into the brains? I can't remember. Okay, that's terrible. <laughs> Uh, oh, but so many of the animals had to be euthanized. Um, right. And those Florida key deer, are, you know, they're a protected species. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. So what, you know, specifically we talked about how we eradicate it, and then again, I guess it keeps trying to come back It here. remains a risk, yeah. Right. So what exactly did we do? What are the methods that we're using to get rid of this thing? Yeah, so um, I th- it's the, the eradication of screwworm is uh, – uh, the first and really the classic example of using genetics to control an insect, uh, and it's it's what I teach in the class I'm teaching at the moment in uh, for entomology graduate students. So the the sort of key breakthrough was in the 1930s when uh, Cushing and Patton realized that what had been commonly thought of as Cochlemia hominivorax was two species. the The adults of Cochlemia macellaria and hominivorax looked very similar. And once they realized that these were distinct, then it became apparent that the pest, hominivorax, was present in actually quite low densities. The secondary screwworm is much more common, much more abundant, but it's not the pest. And so uh, a fellow called um, Nippling started uh, thinking about how perhaps he could uh, eradicate this fly by releasing sterile, sterile flies. Um, and if he did some calculations and he thought, you know, if I could release a ratio of like 10 to 1 sterile flies to fertile flies, but most of the time the females out there in the farm are going to mate with a sterile fly, and they only mate once in the field. So if she mates with a sterile male, it won't produce any offspring. And they tried this technique out in the early 1950s on the island of Curacao in the Caribbean, and it was really very successful. So then it was tested in Florida, and within two years, the screwworm had been eradicated completely from Florida, saving producers millions of dollars. 
Wow. And so a lot have, of suffering too. So right. that's great. Yeah. And then, so the program was then extended, releasing sterile flies throughout Texas, uh, then eventually Mexico and Central America to where we are today, where the, there was a factory in Panama, uh, not far from the international airport, that rears a, somewhere in the order of 10 to 15 million flies per week. They're radiation sterilized, loaded onto planes, and flown along the Colombia-Panama uh, border every day. Okay, that's amazing for a number of reasons. First of all, there's a fly-producing factory in Panama, yes. right? And then you're you're essentially just raising these creatures the way they would normally be raised, and then you just irradiate them to render them sterile, and yes. then you can release them. Okay, so how are laboratory-grown screwworms made? Do you just put them on raw meat and well, let them was, do the their thing? Well, that was the USDA or? scientists, yeah, really figured out a diet that would work. Because okay. like you said, you know, uh, this is an obligate parasite. It's used to eating the flesh of a living animal. Right. Uh, but they did figure out a diet that could be used to rear them artificially. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So what are the barriers to um, sort of using this to wipe them from the face of the earth entirely? Is yeah. it just time, money, and resources, the usual things? Or are we making yeah, progress cost, slowly? Cost of, yeah. If you, you look at the sort of a map of the world, right, as, as they were eradicating from Texas through Mexico, through Central America to Panama, the geography was in their favor. Right. Right. And this took 50 years. Okay. Right. But so now we're at this sort of dismiss of Panama in a very sort of narrow stretch of land. So it's um, easy to maintain a, a border along there and protect all of Central America and Mexico and the U.S. from the fly coming back. Well, that's good news for us, and hopefully we can help some other countries out too where it's still endemic. Yeah, so we're looking at other approaches to try to make the uh, genetic suppression more efficient to lower the cost. Uh, so that's what's stopping. It's, it's really would be incredibly expensive to try to eradicate screwworm from South America using sterile insect technique. Yeah, because South America is huge. And, you're not, and those flies are very small, apparently. <laughs> and I had no idea how small, um, especially the little larvae, like little a larvae, millimeter. Yeah. Good grief. They grow pretty rapidly, though. By the time they're ready to fall out of the animal, they're about 17 millimeters long. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. So that's a centimeter and a half about or yeah. so. Okay. Yeah. That's noticeable. Oh, yeah. That you would have worms <laughs> falling out of your body. That's awful. Um, but finally, you've had your lunch, I think. I have, I have not yet, but I will be putting that off now for a while. Um, which brings me to my final question. I always ask this of researchers, mm. um, mainly because it's interesting and, and fun for me. So, what is the coolest or grossest or most interesting thing you've discovered while studying either the primary screwworm, the secondary, or any of these kinds of creatures? What's like your favorite fact? Probably several. I mean, the, the, there was one one story that was in the newspaper a couple of years ago about an American family that went on holiday in Bolivia, and while they were waiting for the plane, the one of the children was saying that her head was a bit itchy. Oh dear! And because uh, it's a long trip from Bolivia to where they were, I think it was Minnesota or something like that. Oh wow! And the, by the time they got there, the girl was in a lot of pain as the screwworm were starting to eat into the flesh. So. Oh, gosh. She had to be treated, yeah, pretty quickly. Okay, yeah. okay. But they were still small at that point. Right. In terms of 
interest for me. Um, I'm so screwworms not alone. There is a lot of blowflies, not a lot, but there there's probably about eight hundred or so species of blowflies, and blowflies seem to have this ability to evolve rapidly from what they normally do, which is lay their eggs in dead animals, to becoming a parasite. So there's the New World screwworm, but its closest relative secondary screwworm is not a parasite. In if you go to Asia, there's the Old World screwworm. It's also a blowfly, but it's not closely related, and its closest relative is not a parasite. So they have this ability to quickly evolve this parasitic lifestyle. And to do that, they've got to be able to live at the body temperature of a cow, which is pretty warm for an insect, and deal with a, a mammalian immune system. So from a science point of view, I'm sort of interested how this rapid evolution of parasitism occurs in blowflies. And um, we're part of an NSF-funded project with uh, researchers in Brazil and other researchers at NC State to, to look at this um, taking sort of a genomics uh, and using CRISPR approach. Yeah, I suppose we don't want the secondary screwworm to suddenly turn into kind of a primary screwworm as well, right? We don't need more of these animals figuring out how to become a parasite. That would be awful. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Max. This has been fascinating and gross at the same time. So I think it's time well spent. We've been speaking today with Max Scott, professor of entomology at NC State. This has been Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peake. Thank you so much for listening.